0: Welcome to Clinical Appraisal, a podcast about nursing science with a focus on methodology. I'm your host, Ian Lane. All opinions shared are my own, and none of this information constitutes medical or nursing advice. This podcast is for educational purposes only. If you would like to make a donation in support of my efforts to continue this show, please visit paypal.me forward slash clinical appraisal. If you would like to ask a question or share a comment, please email me at clinicalappraisal at gmail.com. Today I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Stephanie Griggs. Dr. Griggs is a pediatric nurse and an assistant professor of nursing at the Francis Payne Bolton School of Nursing at Case Western Reserve University, and she's an associate faculty member in the Schubert Center for Child Studies. Her core research interests are in sleep self-management and cardiometabolic health. She's currently studying the role of sleep and the circadian system on chronic conditions of childhood, including type 1 diabetes, as well as biobehavioral technology-based interventions to support sleep self-management and sleep promotion in adolescents and young adults. In this conversation, Dr. Griggs and I discuss her methodological approaches to the study of sleep and diabetes self-management in transition-age youth and some of her long-term aspirations for her work. Please enjoy this fantastic episode with Dr. Stephanie Griggs. Joining me today is Dr. Stephanie Griggs, a nurse and self-management researcher at Francis Payne Bolton School of Nursing at Case Western. She's focused on sleep and diabetes self-management. Stephanie, thanks for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Can you give my listeners a quick sense of who you are and what your main interests are?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So as you mentioned, my research has been primarily focused on improving lives for young adults with type 1 diabetes through sleep um, behavior. So I, i Currently, am um, trying to to work with young adults in improving their sleep behavior. That transition from adolescence to young adulthood is a very stressful transition. Um, they're sort of moving out of their childhood homes. They're also going to college, potentially starting a job, um, and then also transitioning providers too. That is another issue, like going from pediatric to adult care. And so, really, I know that that's a high, like a, it's a stressful time. It's also a time where sleep may not be the priority. Um, but we do know that there's a, a strong connection between sleep and their self-management and also their um, glucose, which is very important in managing. So I'm hoping to um, identify this modifiable target and try to improve it in this population so that we can have better outcomes because they have like the poorest outcomes of any other age group, especially in achieving their glycemic targets.
0: Oh, interesting. So for, for the kind of transition age youth, they have the worst outcomes in terms of their diabetes?
1: Yes. So oh, um, A1C that. is a marker that measures like the last three months of their glucose management, basically, and they only one in eight actually achieve glucose targets, versus yeah. like adolescence is a little bit higher, like three to four, um, and then also um, middle and older adults. It seems like they more stabilized because now they're they're more used to um, the management. They don't have as much of a, like transition and stress. So yes, it's like the specific age that actually because I think like. Now that they don't have the parental supervision or, like, um, the assistance from family, potentially, Mm. I think that's another factor in all of this as well.
0: And I would imagine, like, late adolescence, like, early, you know, young adulthood, you're still, you may not necessarily understand fully all the complications of what could go wrong if you don't manage well, and which kind of speaks to your point about, like, having good care provision kind of transition as well with that age group. Um, yes, interesting. so I know we've talked about this off air in other other ways, but can you for my listeners kind of lay out your path? what did it take for you to kind of get from what you studied in your dissertation and kind of um, postdoc land <laughs> and then how did you end up doing what you're doing now with this population?
1: yeah that's a that's a great question and it's it's quite a path I must say I think I didn't really it's one of those things where when you're sort of on, at the different stages of your career, you don't necessarily know all of the stages or steps that you need to take to get to the next, the next stage. Um, for example, I didn't even think that I was going to do a postdoc. Quite honestly, when I started my PhD program, and then I did know that I wanted to be faculty from the postdoc. But it's it's challenging, and and I think like when we enter our PhD programs, we're always like plagued with what do I need to, you know, what should I study, right? You're always asked that in your admission interviews. And then when you start your classes, it's always like, what are you going to study? You know, what's your topic? And it's very, I think it's daunting for students because like, they feel like, well, what if I choose the wrong topic? Or what if like, I don't have maybe like what I need at that institution, maybe to support this topic. So maybe I should choose something that is more in line with the faculty. So there's a lot that goes into, I think, choice of a topic, um, and I, I think in reality, like, if we can put the dissertation into perspective that it's a mentored student project, right? So you can glean a lot of insight from from what you do for your dissertation, whether it be methods related, um, potentially it's a concept. Um, so it's not like you can't choose the wrong topic, so to speak, but you should choose a topic that you're very passionate about. So at the time, I was really, like, looking at the faculty and the concepts, I was a pediatric nurse. So my clinical background was in, in pediatric nursing. I actually initially wanted to look at pain during procedures because like as an acute care nurse, that is something I saw that I didn't think was managed very well. Like it always like kind of stood out in my mind as like a potential that we could influence. And I was also motivated based on like my background Like what motivates people to do better? So like I kind of had like this, like I was like thinking like, do I want to go more clinical? Do I want to look at more of a concept? And I started as I was exploring concepts in class, um, I started to really latch on to this idea like of what drives people, what motivates people. So I really did make a shift like from what I initially said during my admission interviews to to, um, my dissertation topic. And so I ended up looking at um, hope, the concept of hope. Um, As a driving force, and I, I looked at a couple of outcomes: emotional well-being and risk-taking behavior. And I I focused on young adults because I was really interested. Although I did have a pediatric background, um, it does go up to 22, like the population that I took care of. Mm. And I was very interested. Again, like at that time in that transition, um, and seeing folks sort of take on like the adult role. And I really wanted someone, a population that I could talk to and hear like what their perspective was, or at least you know they could share in writing um clearly what what had happened. So I did find a hope scale, it was a validated hope scale and I looked at the relationship and actually hope was a predictor of emotional well-being and not so much risk taking um but it definitely seemed that those with higher hope had better emotional well-being. And so that was my topic and I looked at young adults specifically in their first year of college. Immediately after graduating, um I you know I was able to publish my dissertation, did very well, like it went very well. I did structural equation modeling and path analysis. So I, I got some good mentoring in technique and different methods. And I also had done a little bit of a qualitative study for a secondary analysis as well. So I really got some good methods experience as well as my topic. I really was I felt like I knew my topic very well. But right right after I graduated, interestingly enough, I noticed that a lot of folks were getting more into self-management and sleep, and so actually, I was faculty at another institution, UMass Amherst. They had a sleep center there, so they had a sleep um, sleep and self-management center. And so I was just seeing like different people studying this topic, and I was became interested in that. But also, as faculty, I had students with diabetes, and because of my pediatric background, I had recalled. You know, the initial diagnosis of that condition, also complications from that condition, like clinically. And I started to think like, this seemed like, seemed like a population that sleep was important or at least fatigue. I, I saw like that symptom exacerbated in students, like students with type one diabetes seem to have more fatigue, harder time, like with their, their classes and with test taking. So I really, I wanted to look at specifically this population. I really wanted to narrow into one population. And so I, looked at type one diabetes and sleep. And so I so I started off just writing an integrative review, exploring the topic. And I was thinking about applying to the center grant because they had pilot awards. So I had started to write that. um, But at the same time, folks were talking to me about well, what are your next steps? Are you going to be a postdoc? Like are you going to do a postdoc? Are you going to you know put a K award in? What are you thinking? And quite honestly, right after I graduated, I know I knew like I needed more. Like it just wasn't enough. Like, yes, the PhD was great, but I'm like Am I really set up to be, to sort of put awards in, right? To like apply for NIH funding to like get to that next, next, next step. So I knew I needed a postdoc. Um, and people started talking to me about that. So I started to like look for T32s because I had heard that that's actually an institutional training, um, training award that is awarded to an exceptional PI who's had um, a record of R01 funding. And so I started to do a little search. I put like sleep and diabetes in. I was just trying to like look around. And actually, Yale School of Nursing, which was very close to where I lived, um, it was an hour and a half away, um, so I wouldn't have to relocate. They actually were doing exactly that. So I was so excited because um, they had the mentors there, and they had the T32. T32 was in self-management. So I decided to do a postdoc there. And really, um, during that time my goal was really to get that grant funding piece or that grant funding mentorship. So I I wanted to put an award in. I had looked at a mechanism known as the K99 R00. Some people refer to it as a kangaroo award, but essentially (laughs) it's a two phased award where the K phase, you're a postdoc um, or a non-tenure track, like research position. And then the um, R phase, the R O O it, you apply for again, but you have to have a tenure track position in order to activate that phase of the award. So I, I thought it was a very attractive mechanism because like when you're in this transitionary phase, it's hard to like, when you started a new place to like get that momentum going to like get connected to your research population to start things going, and then have to like also put an award in like a like a brand new award. I think that that seemed to be like daunting. So I'm like, maybe I could somehow expedite that, right? And that is I think the intention of this award so that you have grants or a grant as a postdoc and then you also can take an award with you as faculty. So the, those first few years of tenure track faculty are very important. You have your protected time oftentimes, you have a startup package. And if you already have funding in hand, I think that can really expedite you into getting your first R01, which at a lot of R01 institutions that is a requirement of tenure. So I, I that's sort of what I did um, in my postdoc. I applied for the K99 R00, also some small foundation funding. I was successful in getting the grant. I did put it in twice, and then um, I actually took both. I took both grant. Uh, mechanisms to Case Western because my postdoc was ending. So the T thirty two funding was ending. And so I started at Case Western and was able to um, basically complete, not complete, but I'm almost done with that award. Um, I'm in my second year of the R phase. So it's a four mine is a four year award. And then now I'm putting in R01s. So it's kind of it's exciting. And I'm in a tenure track position at an R1 institution. So that that was my path at least. Um, And I think it's different for everyone depending on where they do their PhD and where they do their postdoc and what they sort of need in terms of to get to that next step, so to speak.
0: One of the things that I noticed, and you can tell me if this sounds off-base, is there's a connection with kind of deciding this population to study too, on both the sleep side and the diabetes side, which is there is a gap in their ability to self-manage both of those things. And then mm-hmm. presumably you're looking at the literature at the same time thinking, like, there's this connection between sleep and diabetes, irrespective of the population. And then it just, like, makes this beautiful connection for you that's taken you through this, you know, postdoc and uh, tenure track kind of trajectory. Super interesting how, how people kind of fall into that through some of their doctoral work and um, postdoctoral work. Um, And also, I really appreciate your beautiful explanation of the K99 ROO award. Super interesting mechanism.
1: Yeah, it's a newer mechanism, actually. Um, So for those that are interested in that, like, I'm happy to talk more about that because it's a lot of people have questions about it and they actually come find me because like, it's one of those that not a lot of nurses hold this award. Mm. And so we sort of like nationally, we all reach out to each other to talk about it because it's not. It's not well understood (laughs) quite yet.
0: Very cool. So you touched on this a little bit. What is the kind of core problem that you're interested in solving? And I know, you know, as scientists, we don't really do that. Like we chip away at big, big problems over time. And usually it takes like a plethora of scientists, like working off of each other's work to like do that. But in this kind of hypothetical thought experiment world, if you were to be able to solve in your career one big problem, what is that giant issue that you're really trying to solve? What grips you the most? I
1: think, at least in my population that I'm currently studying, um, young adults or adults with type one diabetes, and other several, you know, related conditions, so other cardiometabolic conditions, other autoimmune conditions. At least with type one diabetes, we know, for example, that these individuals have a shortened life expectancy by 12 years, oh, wow. and so. That's pretty sick to me that's very significant and I I think that what I'm working towards because uh, glycemic we know that gly, achieving glycemic targets is the single best predictor of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease which is actually the number one cause of death in this population and so we've gotten better at that we've gotten better with intensive um, insulin therapy we do know that that's a better um, therapy and now that's been adopted um, in practice but what I'm what I'm very interested in is closing that life expectancy gap, because I don't think we should still have a 12-year life expectancy gap, like especially now with all of our advanced knowledge. And so what I would love to do is to close that gap and to really think about how it's not just a – yes, glycemic targets are important, because I think we've, we've done that. Like, that's what we've done in practice. We've addressed things like physical activity and diet. For me, what, what we haven't addressed really is sleep behavior. And that is that is, the, that is a big gap. Like that's not readily addressed in practice. We do sometimes get at sleep apnea. Like if people have risk factors for sleep apnea, we'll, we will refer them to a, um, a sleep uh, medicine provider to do a, a sleep study. Um, however, we don't really think about other aspects of sleep behavior because like there are other aspects that if somebody doesn't have sleep apnea that we can potentially address. And also the timing of therapy and the timing of their their sleep is important. So I think that if we can look at – so type 1 in and of itself is exposure to the vasculature, and it, it leads – you know, the high glycemia, hyperglycemia that is not well within range um, does create this vascular damage. But if we can come up with other strategies, especially earlier on, I do think that that's another piece is we sometimes say, well, they're young. You know, adult, adolescents are young. Young adults are young. But in reality, their vascular age may be much older because this this particular this age group is diagnosed much earlier, sometimes as you know, an, an infant or a toddler. So they they have that exposure, so to speak, for maybe twenty years by the time they're in their twenties. So I do think we need to start thinking younger, and we need to start addressing these things sooner, uh, rather than just saying, "Oh, because right now in the type one diabetes world." We basically apply the same principles that we apply to everyone else. Okay, so at, once you're 40, we'll, we'll start doing risk assessment. We'll look at your coronary arteries. We, we might do a scan. Then we might put you on, you know, like we might look at your cholesterol, for example, and look at that picture. But we look at like single risk factors. I do think, first of all, if we know that it's, it's a 12-year gap, we need to be doing this at least 12 years sooner. <laughs> like that to me, right. that's like that seems obvious, but... We don't really have the evidence base now to support that. That's a huge gap that the American Diabetes Association has identified as well as the NIH. And so I would like, I think, in my long-term plan is to develop better risk assessment earlier and to intervene sooner and in the real-world environment. It's not just about, yes, they, they see their providers every three months for their diabetes management, but what, what can we do in their home to address those risk factors Sooner because blood pressure, for example, we know that if you're only measuring it every three months or every six months, that can lead to, you know, kidney failure, as an example. And some individuals end up with kidney failure in their 20s or in their late 20s, Mm. sometimes early 20s. So if we can like monitor blood pressure more closely, we can monitor their cholesterol and all of these other factors. Their weight is another example because now um, we didn't used to see obesity and overweight in this. Um, population 20 years ago but now with the obesity epidemic we're seeing higher rates of obesity so if we can get i think a handle on some of these other risk factors i think we could potentially improve life expectancy and i would love to see like an equivalent life expectancy
0: Mm, absolutely at
1: least to the general population
0: yeah that's a that's a frightening statistic and i mean i i didn't realize that it was quite so large a gap Myself, I mean, I knew it was, was there, I just didn't realize it was 12 years, which that's, that's an amazing figure. Mm -hmm. You also touched on something that I just was talking about this with a friend of mine, we were talking about these 10 year risk scores. And, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're only looking at 10 years in advance, if you're a young person, if you're looking at this curve, youth is obviously going to be a better predictor of lower 10 year scores but if you're only measuring out for 10 years you're missing all of the sequelae of the you know 30 years that that young well what used to be a young person is now um experiencing as a result of that vascular insult from this hyperglycemia for example or hypertension um mm-hmm. so i mean some of this is like a there's a significant limitation in how we're measuring risk in yes. younger people compared to older people cuz age is clearly the best predictor older age for, I mean, all cause mortality. And Mm -hmm. I mean, anything else you look at, aging is a significant predictor of vascular dysfunction, but those things are cumulative. Those insults are cumulative over time. And Mm -hmm. so it just doesn't, you know, it behooves us not to look earlier at some of these things. I completely agree with you. One of the things that you have started to do, and we've uh, just kind of briefly touched on this um, the last time I spoke with you, but I'm really interested in, You're doing some really cool work with different types of analyses, especially because you're looking at things like circadian rhythm and biological rhythms associated with sleep and sleep behaviors. So in 2021, you published a paper in Chronobiology International with Dr. Gray and other colleagues from Yale. For those that are not familiar, cosiner analyses basically fit sinusoidal functions to rhythmic biological data, uh, particularly for time series analysis. So Mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about how you've been using this method and kind of what's led you to realizing its import for some of your work in particular?
1: You did explain that very well um, in terms of the fitting um, of that line. So if you think about like the general linear model as an example, and we want to know a mean of a variable as an example, when you have like a large data set and you want to know that middle or that average, um, it gives us a sense of the whole, so to speak. But when we think about, in a co model, model, um, we're estimating those biological rhythms. So we end up with the time series data, as you mentioned. So some of our, our sampling could be every 30 seconds, every 60 seconds, every mm. five minutes. And you have to have three days or more to estimate this um, adequately. And um, so we, have the, we all have this underlying circadian rhythm. And when you break down the term circadian, cir- circa means about, and dia is Latin for day, hmm. diem. So it stands for day. So it, it roughly translates to about a day, and so when you are estimating a cosine or a model, it produces these three parameters that are parametric. At least we'll get into. I'll probably talk mostly about the parametric because I could spend a whole uh, episode on non-parametric. But in the parametric, one of the parameters that is estimated is measure. So it stands for midline estimating statistic of rhythm. Hmm. And then also the amplitude, which is like the strength of the rhythm, and then the acrophase, which is the peak timing of activity. So, so how that translates, if you're thinking about a general linear model, the measure is basically the average. And it's a, it's a mean based on the parameters of a cosine function fitted to the raw data. So if you were to just get an average, like so, so if you were to get all the activity of that person and you were to get an average, you're going to actually miss how that because it's not it's not a straight line um we have active like we have increased activity during the day if this is if you don't work night shift and then you have lower activity at night so you have to fit to this line and you want to get a good sense of what is that average based on this this um cosine function and these rhythmic data are not equidescent so it pro- produces more of a an unbiased estimator of central tendency than if you were to just get that arithmetic mean mm. um it, and as I mentioned, the amplitude is the strength. So it's the difference of between the peak and the mean value of a wave. And um, so higher amplitude indicates more robust rhythm. And then the acrophase is that peak time. So essentially, different populations will have different peak times, for example, young adults and adolescents. So as um, people become an adolescent, we, we notice that people have a, a delay in phase. So everyone has a phase. And that phase becomes delayed, meaning they go to bed later, and also melatonin is secreted later. So we'll see this shift in phase starting in adolescence peaking in, in young adulthood and, and to about the age of twenty six where it then goes back to a more of a normal phase back to shifts back to a normal phase um, and then in older adulthood, the opposite happens. so there's an earlier shift or um, a phase advance is what we call it, and so older adults. Tend to go to bed earlier. In that peak timing, we can estimate the timing of their um, activity and, and, so to speak, um, their, essentially their phase.
0: Hmm. That's really interesting. Um, do you have a sense? I don't want to take us too off uh, the beaten path here, but do you have a sense as to what causes those phase shifts in those different age ranges?
1: There's a biological explanation. There is a social, there's, so it's a biological, social, and environmental. Those all of those three factors are important. So in biologically we know that melatonin is actually secreted later in adolescents and young adults. Mm. So then melatonin then shifts back. Um, the I think what happens too in adolescents. So if your melatonin is secreted later, you're also then exposed to less light in the morning. And light is another, so that's part of the environment. It's another reinforcing factor. So if you're exposed to less light in the morning, you're, you're going to continue on this, fa- this like phase that you're on, so to speak. Um, so like the, it's reinforced by the environment. It's also reinforced by social behavior. So adolescents and young adults tend to stay up later. They're socializing. Um, and there are some theories out there where because of that, the need to, to create this network, with individuals and socialization, this started like back you know hundreds thousands of years ago, where people had to um, become more united, and this happened when their parents were asleep, right? So like the adolescents, and as they're becoming a little older and establishing their independence and building these peer networks, that that was the time they could do it <laughs> um, and do it effectively. So it kind of like it seems like it's evolved to continue. Um, in in now. And then, uh, yeah, so it's like environment, it's behavior, and it's also biology.
0: That's uh, really interesting. And, you know, it also highlights why it's so important to model that oscillatory sinusoidal function, because, you know, if you're only, like you said, getting that arithmetic mean, you're missing all the variability in where that mean travels, so to speak, for that person throughout the day, or throughout the night. And, you know, if you can model that changing average in that nonlinear path, you can essentially use all these different predictors that you've mentioned, light, activity, you know, I mean, name name a predictor, diet, Mm -hmm. you know, socialization, like whatever the case is, to see how it's changing that person's patterns of sleep. So that's a really interesting approach.
1: It also produces some nice visuals, like you can see it, which is that's, that's the nice part about it you can like see people's like time series activity data and like the dips and the peaks. And it's really cool.
0: That's cool. So you're probably interested in all sorts of different independent variables, but what are the, some some of the factors that you find most interesting or most compelling when you're doing models like this, you know, like are there particular factors that for this age group that you hypothesize are the most potent based on some of the work that you've done with these co models?
1: (sighs) Yeah, I mean, I think that light is actually one of the strongest zeitgebers. Um, we call it zeitgeber is a German word. It means time synchronizer. Mm. Um, because, I, well, what happens with light is when light enters the retina and goes, travels through the retino hypothalamic tract, um, it sends a, a message to the pineal gland to stop secreting with light melatonin. So when we see light, that signal goes to our brain to stop secreting melatonin. And melatonin is the hormone that we need to sleep. It's a sleepy hormone essentially. And so when we see dark, the opposite happens in humans where um, the message is sent and more melatonin is secreted. So like that whole melatonin secretion aspect is driven by light. And I think some of the, pro- the problems in modern society are that we now have an iPhone or a smartphone um, and that, that lives by our bedside, right? <laughs> it's usually like on our night side table. And this happens for all age groups really now. And so like looking at that light and especially blue light at night is tricking the brain into thinking it's time to be awake. (laughs) So that's really having a negative impact on us um, in terms of being able to fall asleep and also secrete enough melatonin to be sleepy. Um, So that light, I think, is a big driver. Unfortunately, it's hard to measure light. (laughs) So we have like there's a light sensor on the actigraph that people wear, but it can get covered by their sheets, by their sleeve, etc there are external light sensors that you can use in the room, but then does that travel with them all day So that has been a big measurement concern or issue like for scientists like being able to measure light um, continuously. Sound is another one like so sound can keep people awake. Um, it drives people to be more awake and talking and, and all of the so things like earplugs and eye masks can go a long way because now you're blocking that and trying to induce more sleep. And I think the other thing that I'm becoming more and more interested in is diet and timing of meals. Hmm. I do think that that – and there's actually now a, there's a circadian diet. A lot of people have heard about intermittent fasting, but there's also now becoming more and more interest in the circadian diet because we really need we need periods of fasting. And I think that the timing of meals – does actually impact our ability to sleep well and to to have um, high quality sleep that's of adequate duration.
0: Just out of curiosity, is that more like you shouldn't eat too close to bed, that there's an optimal range? Or is that like... Mm
1: -hmm. So it it depends on your like. So what we want to eventually do is model it to be in sync with your phase. So if you are a later phase, you probably could eat later. But if you're in earlier phase, you should like you should have that gap um, before going to sleep, so that you have a longer period of fasting, so to speak.
0: Kind of last off base question for you. So, is it true that there is intra individual variability in chronotype? Like, have you ever heard that term in the Mm -hmm. kind of pop culture? Like, oh, my chronotype is different. That's why I I sleep till ten a.m. and you know other people get up at four thirty. Is there any actual validity to that as you're looking at these models where you can actually model that kind of change?
1: Yeah. So, chronotype is actually the behavioral manifestation of the underlying circadian rhythm. Mm. So, when you ask people, there are validated questionnaires to get at someone's chronotype. You ask them, like, what their preference is. Do they feel very, you know, do they feel awake and ready to go in the morning? Are they hungry? Like, there are a series of questions. It's actually, they have a 19 item questionnaire, the morningness, eveningness questionnaire, that can get at chronotype. And so, we have earlier chronotypes, which those are the ones, those are the people that you wake up early without an alarm clock. <laughs> um, you're ready to go. You can have like, you could start work really early and be energetic. Um, and then there are intermediate chronotypes, which that's the majority of the population, which is about two thirds, where you're not really quite ready to go in the morning. I mean, you can wake up early, but you're like, you know, you're not like, oh, I just want to socialize and eat and do all those things right away kind of have a little couple hours difference. And then there are later chronotypes where don't talk to me in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, those individuals that are not happy to wake up in the morning. Um, and also like they're staying up really late at night. They're hard, They have a hard time going to sleep at night. That is it's it actually is a manifestation of that person's underlying circadian rhythm. Mm. And society actually prefers early chronotypes. Society mm. is actually geared for those chronotypes. Because like, you know, we, we have that seven, you know, sometimes in nursing, for example, we do seven to seven (laughs) or, or, um, even in the business world, it's nine to five. So the the earlier types are going to be up, they're gonna be productive, they're, they're working. Um, and people that come in, they're like, Oh, I'm tired. Right. They're not like viewed as favorably, but it's really just, it's there. That may not, they might not be their peak time. Mm. Like they might have better performance at noon. And that, I think that's okay. Like, it's just. You can't punish, and that's why later school start times is a big priority issue. As I mentioned earlier, adolescents, they biologically have a difference, and yet we always make their times earlier, or we often make their times earlier. And I know a lot of it's about safety, right, because, like, parental supervision, like they don't need as much parental supervision so they can start earlier, and parents have to work, and so there's a lot of other social factors that go into that decision, but you are then now forcing that individual to wake up um, earlier than their phase is telling them them to wake up, or biologically they're supposed to wake up, and so they're not going to perform as well. They're going to get shorter sleep. They're also going to then go to bed later. So that is that's a big movement is to to try to align school start times. At least even even like the studies that have done a half an hour, they show a huge performance increase. Interesting in these in these adolescents. So
0: wow. So do you think that some of these um, are innate? to some genetic factor for some of these folks? Or do you think it's all basically just like, as their patterns of work and school and socialization and things over the years have evolved? That's just kind of how their phase shift has has occurred for them? Uh, is there any reason to believe that some people are literally just born with an ideal sort of window to sleep? Mm hmm.
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. I don't think we know a lot about the genetics yet. I do know that there are genetic differences. So there is like a there is variability. Not everyone in adolescence is a later chronotype as an example. Mm. There are some adolescents that are not, but I think the the vast majority are later. They do we do see that shift and then we see and also we're not really great about understand we don't have a great understanding about sex and gender. And those differences like we've we've assumed there are sex differences however I think this is a gap in the literature right we don't often separate sex and gender especially in some of the earlier literature so we don't know like what are the sex and gender effects that could that could be um, driving this we do know that in some of the studies it's uh, it has been suggested that males and females sex wise that males have a later chronotype than females <laughs> there's also like this other socialization aspect where um, partners may have different chronotypes. So, like, um, for example, one partner might have an earlier chronotype, and one partner might have a later chronotype. And that often, like, the whole opposites attract. Why that is is because when you're when we're sleeping, we're in our most vulnerable state, right? And so, like, we're we have that fear that we could potentially be attacked, and that comes from like way back, you know, earlier days,
0: <laughs> saber tooth tiger so you, days.
1: Yeah. So if you have two different chronotypes, so to speak, one can stand guard to watch for that attack potentially while the other one's sleeping and then like switch off. So it's almost like, you know, people complain, oh, my gosh, we're different chronotypes. Like, you, you know, that person comes in bed and wakes me up and vice versa, like you're waking me up in the earlier end. But in reality, you may have been attracted to one another based on that reason because you feel safer to the external environment.
0: Wow. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's so interesting. I mean, I feel like there are these areas of life where all of us as humans, they're like we're intrinsically interested in like nutrition, because we all have to eat, relationships, because we're all in them at some point or another, sleep, we all have to do it to live, you know? <laughs> so uh, this is really interesting. And it seems like there's so much left to learn that it's just mm-hmm. a never ending supply of fascinating things to look at. So, uh, kind of getting back. A little bit on track. One of the things that I'm particularly interested in is pain and pain mm-hmm. self-management. Have you noticed anything in your data so far about the intersection between sleep and pain? And, you know, what are your thoughts on that intersection in particular?
1: Yes, I think that is a very interesting question. Um, there is quite a... I think there's a decent amount of literature. There's there are two, a few different theories about pain. Um, I know like headaches, for example, and migraines, um, and sleep. It's, it does seem to be that there is... So there's this intricately interwoven system referred to as homeostasis. And in the sleep, sleep science world, we call it sleep-wake homeostasis. And um, so it's basically we... One of the theories is that the, there is an imbalance between the sleep and the wake system or the sleep and the circadian system leading to excessive sleepiness or wakefulness. And that could be a lack of sleep pressure. So, as we, um, so in the morning, we have uh, the lowest amount of sleep pressure, which is driven by adenosine. And as we go throughout our day, adenosine builds up throughout the day. And then at night, it should be the highest, theoretically so that we can sleep, so that we sleep off that quote-unquote sleep pressure. This is why when you nap during the day, you can potentially affect your sleep pressure because you're lowering that sleep pressure, that pressure, (laughs) and caffeine actually blocks adenosine receptors, which leads to the belief that you're not as sleepy. (laughs) Um, So it's that, we some part of it is that we believe that pain is actually this imbalance between sleepiness and wakefulness. Or if we sleep at inappropriate times, like with jet lag or shift work, so the system essentially is attempting to compensate and to redress this balance. So we, you know, we probably have all experienced sleep deprivation at some point in our lives or another. Maybe we've pulled an all nighter, maybe we've had like a, we've flown across three time zones, whatever mm-hmm. the case may be. But we, I'm sure that we all also recall. During that period of sleep deprivation, we also have a headache. (laughs) It's often coupled with a headache. They're like, oh, my head hurts. I have to sleep. Um, And so interestingly enough, when you have a headache or a migraine, you're forced to lie down, right? And so when you lie down and you get rest and you often, like light is also another trigger for migraines, You're, you're forced to lie down and possibly be in the dark. You are the body is ultimately redressing this balance, right? Because you could potentially fall asleep, and often when we fall asleep, we we fall asleep during that time. We can wake up hopefully pain free, like hopefully we've addressed that imbalance that's happened, or at least pain has um, lowered a little bit. And the other, the other is true too. If we have too much sleep, so if we're and we're sleeping at the wrong time. We can also potentially wake up with a migraine. And I know migraines actually peak in the morning. Like it's it's like between uh, – I don't remember the exact timing, but it tends to happen in the morning. Mm-hmm. And so that's another – that could be a factor of excessive sleep. And again, like the sleep pressure um, balance, that could be an issue. And essentially like the body is trying to uh, – the body does try to compensate with the, um, the sleep pressure and the circadian alignment. So trying to align – the timing of sleep, and also to balance the sleep pressure um, between um, sleep and wakefulness. So I think I think that is one way. And I do think I, I could go on and on about sort of like also what happens at night. So we have non-REM and we have REM sleep. So non-REM is non-rapid um, eye movement sleep and then rep, rapid eye movement sleep. So in the first half of the night, we have more non-rapid eye movement sleep and slow wave sleep, which is our deep sleep. And that is our restoration hmm. That's, that's the restorative process that happens and balances the hormones um, and repairs the body, so to speak, in many, in many ways. Whereas REM is associated with dreams and it also um, balances the emotional system and the emotional hormones. So things like depression and anxiety are better with REM sleep. Mm. So if you have a deficiency on either end, you can have um, is- issues with anxiety or potentially um other, other body systems. So really that's, that's why the length of sleep is important. You don't want to just have like half a night of sleep because then you might be missing on REM, missing out on REM sleep. Because that does tend to happen in the second half of the night. Mm,
0: That's fascinating. And you just gave me like three different ideas for things to look (laughs) at in the future. So, you know, small, very short tangent. I, my listeners know this about me, but um, you know, that I'm studying migraines for my dissertation but um, my listeners have heard me say I actually have a primary headache disorder myself, and what's what I so I did this n of one kind of thing a couple of years ago where for an entire summer I studied a hundred lifestyle factors for a hundred days and I did this multiple regression pretty straightforward thing just to see like what in my life somebody said to me like well have you done a headache journal and I thought. I'm going to do the best headache journal ever. (laughs) So I'm like doing my own regression. I'm like, okay. So it turns out the only, and I, I tracked exactly a hundred factors, different nutrients, different types of physical activity. The only two things that were related and they really only accounted accounted for about 25% of the variance in my headaches was sleep and stress. Mm Mm-hmm. And I found that to be so interesting, because I always knew sleeping poorly or not sleeping enough, or even in some cases, to your point, sleeping too much influenced them, but I didn't realize to what extent. And some of the things, you know, I mean, stress affects my sleep too. And so it's interesting how much revolves around that circadian rhythm and that REM sleep.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So uh, we don't have like a ton of time left, but I'm really interested in your take on how, you know, one of the things that I think about for sleep is there are different time-varying covariates that work their way into these models, I imagine. You know, like, if you're, actually, you made a really good point about your partner. Like, if your partner comes mm-hmm. to bed at a different time than you go to bed, <laughs> <laughs> that's going to be one element of this. You know, how, first of all, how do you think about time-varying covariates in your models? And then in terms of this cosine or model, do you have really good ways to model time varying covariates in that?
1: Yeah, so I I think there are probably, I, as I dive into the methods, there are probably better ways. Um, some of the ways that I've handled them thus far, so basically when you estimate these parameters from the co or model, you get you get your measure, so you get a value um, based on three days or more. You get an amplitude, you get an acrophase as an example. And so you can then look at potentially multi-level model i've looked at mixed models and multi-level models and so you can put time varying covariance into those models potentially and one 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 set of relationships that i've looked at um actually are the um sleep timing variables and glucose mm. so for example because we have so many so many days of both of those and that's that's in reality, why so, so far I've been able to do that. So I might put in a time variant covariate into the uh, mixed model, looking at those two in, in a relationship. Um, so essentially, you get one value as your measure. So you can use that anyway. So you can put that into the general linear model. You can have that in the, your mixed model, um, where you might have one week. Does one week predict the next week? Like how long does it take? Is it three days? Is it one hmm. week? Is it? So when you have more longitudinal data, you can. It will be a lot more interesting. To see that relationship over time. Um, so, and these sensors are pretty comfortable. I think that we have the ability to measure over time. One time variant covariate that has come up in my work, but it's hard to measure, is insulin dose <laughs>
0: mm. and also
1: timing of insulin dose because that can be different. Some people are on pumps that are, they have a basal rate, they also do boluses. Um, there's just a lot going on with insulin. Mm. However, it's hard to measure. So, that is one of our, issues our methodological issues that we run into that's
0: fascinating and yeah i can see why i mean there's so much variability in the amounts that people need and to your point are they getting boluses that's a that's very interesting um okay
1: and i want to discover like does time like how much does timing of insulin matter is it great to is it good to have a basal rate you know and and if so what is your basal rate like i don't know that we've looked at that that closely because insulin is so hard to capture mm. i think that could be an area of yes in t- intensive insulin therapy yes is the gold standard but it, intensive insulin therapy is a big umbrella yeah what does that mean and what is the best um therapy protocol to get a, to get a uh, more uh, higher time and range
0: yeah and i i might be misremembering this because this is not my this isn't even close to my area of expertise but like understanding the insulin or insulinemia area under the curve is actually really hard to measure in and of itself yes Um, okay i thought that was right i mean i i always remember i mean that's why we measure uh glycemia more than anything else in diabetes right because it's actually really hard to get a good measure of where people's insulin actually is
1: Yes, yes. I think in the closed loop systems we can do it a little bit easier because it those systems measure the insulin and the glucose simultaneously. Mm. But a lot of the systems are not together. Like there, the glucose sensor will be separate from the insulin pump, mm. or the person might do injections. So there's like that separation. Then you're then trying to figure out the timing, like to get precise timing, dose, etc. is hard. It's very complicated.
0: Mm. So as we come to the end, I wanted to ask one question um, that I didn't anticipate asking, but I'm curious, what's been the most surprising finding for you in all the work you've done so far? If there's been something that that stands out or resonates that kind of uh, maybe you didn't expect when you first saw it?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I initially was very interested in sleep duration because I know that, that seems to be a big, big focus, right? The National Sleep Foundation says we should get seven to nine hours, and I thought... That, that has to be super important, right? Like we need to have enough sleep duration. But in my work thus far, it has been more about timing than it has been about sleep duration. Like I was hoping to find, okay, well, if it's shorter sleep, glycemia will be poorer. Like we'll have like less achievement of targets. We'll have um, maybe like less time in range, but it's actually been the timing of sleep that's been more important. And that's been a surprise because I did not come into this interested in circadian rhythm i sort of fell into that because when you're in the sleep literature you start to think about timing of sleep and you start to see that there's another that that's a whole other literature is circadian rhythm and how how important the circadian rhythm is in ba- in this balance hmm. and so i think it's not only but i i don't think that the two are separate either i think that they're both equally important because like you could say for example you can, you're going to sleep at the right time. You're going to sleep at the exact same time, wake up at the exact same time. But if that's only four hours, <laughs> that's not a great thing. Right. So it's, it's duration coupled with timing. And then there's this broader concept of sleep health, which that gets at satisfaction. So it's sated, the hmm. sated model by Dan Bicey at University of Pittsburgh. Satisfaction, alertness, timing, efficiency, and duration. So all of these dimensions of sleep health are important because it's not only important how long you sleep and what your sleep timing is. It's also important how efficient that sleep is. Are you spending hours in bed and not sleeping well? Um, are you not alert during the day? That to me is like almost like the crux of this. Because if your timing is perfect and your duration's exactly like per the parameters, but you're exhausted during the day, that's like and you're not able to function. We have to address that in some way. So I think that we have to stop looking at – it's kind of like risk factors to me. We have to stop looking at things in isolation. Oh, we're only Mm going to address hypertension. Oh, we're only going to address cholesterol. No, we we have to look at the whole. We need to think about this as a broader issue and how do all of these things work together. Are they cumulative? Are they additive? Are they synergistic? Mm. And getting at the balance of these dimensions I think is – is really where i'm i'm going to i think that's where i'm leading towards because i do i see it as we can't look at it in isolation anymore
0: yeah i appreciate that very much i think that that will really resonate i mean there are things that are additive cumulative synergistic there's a somebody i think it was angela starkweather recently introduced me to uh the term syndemics um mm. and like you we really need to look at all these multiple pieces together to figure out how they work in concert with each other. Um, because, I mean, we we don't live in these siloed little vacuums <laughs> in our lives either. So did I leave anything out? Um, did I not ask you something that you think I should have asked? Is there anything important that you want to add that we didn't touch on already about your work or about any of the things that you've been interested in?
1: I don't think so. I think that um, you asked very good questions, and I, I really liked our conversation. Um, I would say, in terms of for people in their earlier stage, or maybe a faculty or uh, students, I think it's important to always think about your thread, because there's always a thread. And some people think, oh, this topic is so different from this topic. But in reality, like we just mentioned, these a lot of things work in tandem or synergistically. And so, in my case, people will say, well, you have a different, you had a different dissertation topic than your postdoc topic. And how did you get here? And, but my thread actually was young adulthood. Mm. So, and, and a person is a person first. That is another thing I really want um, the listeners, I think, to think about. A person is not defined by their disease. A person might have multiple roles, right? So, it's a person with type 1 diabetes, it's a person with, but in actuality, they're a young adult. So that, that can sometimes be the thread. So, so, so look for the threads, look for the connections, um, in your work, because I think that you want, ultimately as a scientist and as a faculty, you want to be able to tell a story. How did you start in one place and get to here? And wh- what is your trajectory going forward? How are all of these things linked and how have they helped you to build your career? I think that's an important thing to think about as you you develop a program of research.
0: I think that's very good advice. Um, And, uh, you know, I take that to heart myself because I think that there are times as an early career researcher myself where I wonder, like, will this be, will this make sense to the person five years from now or four years from now that's interviewing me for some faculty position or something? Um, But to your point, there's, you know, there is usually a common thread that you can pull through all those things that you've been interested in. Um, So, I mean, that's a nice segue. You're still at the front end of your career. You have so much amazing things to do over the next who knows how long. And when you look forward, what do you want your legacy to be for your research career?
1: I I love the fact that sleep is a Is a new field. It's an emerge. It's actually sleep medicine. It was not uh, people did not become board certified in sleep medicine until the nineties. So it's a very new field. I'm excited by that because I feel like I can make an impact here. Like as it's a new and emerging field, I feel like I could possibly shape the direction of that field, and it, it excites me that it's also interdisciplinary. Because sleep sleep goes across disciplines, psychology, sociology, medicine, nursing. I just love the fact that it's a field that brings us all together. And what I want my legacy to be, I think I'm hoping that I can make an impact on glycemia, which I think will actually help many different conditions. Because it's also a factor in obesity. And we have an obesity epidemic. So I can see my work, go like we're using CGM technology as an example in um, uh, weight management studies. And so how can can people look at their glucose over time and what foods might impact that fluctuation? So I I hope to um, come up with lifestyle interventions and also address some of these biological factors that are affecting people and and their disease states. Um, So I, I hope to make an impact. I really hope to make an impact on sleep behavior and glycemia for type 1 diabetes and other related conditions.
0: That's awesome. I agree. It it spans, I mean, every possible condition you can imagine. The uh, metabolism of our cells, at virtually every single tissue of the body, if not every single tissue, uses glucose at some mm-hmm. level. And aberrations in glucose metabolism are bound to affect all those tissues to some degree or another. So the impact that you can have with that is truly enormous. Um, and then finally what is, you know, as you look back, you know, I just asked you to look forward to the end of your career, looking back toward the very beginning, what was the best single piece of advice that you received in the early years of your research career that has influenced where you are today?
1: I think some of the best advice that I got was to focus because I think we all want to solve the world's problems. Like, especially (laughs) as early scientists were like, I want to like cure cancer, right? It's always like this big, like pie in the sky idea. But all all of our work is important and it's more important if you can focus on a a narrow aspect. I know it sounds like it's not all that attractive, (laughs) but if you're focused and you understand that topic very well, I think that you can take that work farther and you can also publish – when you start publishing in that area. You can, um, it's, it's easier because now, you know, the literature, and you're not trying to jump into a new literature every time. So I remember I was, I had like a lot of ideas with a mentor and the mentor said to me, focus, I like focus. And so since then, I've really thought about that. I'm like, is that part of what I'm trying to do? So as people ask you to do things, you're like, how is that? How does that work within what I'm trying to do, what I'm trying to accomplish? so always think back to what are you trying to accomplish and how can I focus that work so that I can become an expert in that topic?
0: Absolutely. Um, I appreciate that. As a uh, new research scientist myself, when I first started kind of down this path, I noticed that in order to break in, I had to say yes to all the things and, mm-hmm. you know, do as many different conferences and papers and I mean, anything that I could get my hands on to kind of break into this environment. And then there comes a point where it's not sustainable to do that. And then to your point, I mean, more importantly, eventually not being, not focusing on the things that you care about in particular that motivate your work can really set you back. It's actually not helpful anymore. It's more of a hindrance. So, Mm -hmm. but I do feel like there's this, um, trend at the beginning where, You're sort of navigating different places to be able to get to that point of stability. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, recognizing when you're at the point where you have to start making those calls, I think that's a really hard thing for people in my position. Um, But I do think it's really important. So I think that's a really, really helpful piece of advice. And I appreciate you sharing that. Stephanie Griggs, thank you so much for joining me. This has been an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed talking to you.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Clinical Appraisal. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share this channel with your friends in healthcare and review the show on your favorite listening app. If you'd like to donate to support the show, please visit paypal.me forward slash clinical appraisal. And if you'd like to ask a question or share a comment, or if I've reviewed a paper you are an author on and you would like to join me for an episode, please email me at clinicalappraisal at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you'll join me again next time.